Our scripture reading today is from <clears throat> Our scripture reading today is from Psalm 97 and Luke 1, 30 through 33. This is found on pages 499 and 855 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take one home as a gift from us. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The, The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice. Because of your judgments, O Lord. For, for you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous, and jo- joy is for the upright of, in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous and give thanks to his holy name. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jude. That's so good. Well, good morning, church. Uh, This wonderful Sunday after Thanksgiving morning, uh, I am really glad to be here with you all. My name is Dakota. I'm one of the pastors here at the Brookside campus of Christ Community Church. Um, if you haven't met you yet, I'd love to meet. Uh, I hope everyone had a good time this Thanksgiving break. My wife, Megan, and our two boys and I, we, we just got back last night actually from St. Louis. We were visiting friends from California who now live in Ohio, so we kind of met in the middle. This is a really sweet, restful time for all of us, which is not always the case with traveling and family and all that. So uh, we're really grateful for that. So this morning, we are beginning our sermon series for this season of Advent, which is going to run through Christmas, and then it'll end on December 26th, that Sunday. So we're calling the series, He Shall Be Called. We're going to be getting to know God more deeply through some of the names of God used in the Bible. And we're also going to have this, or we have it, um, this companion journal. This is uh, in the back there. You can pick it up. But this is going to go along with the Advent series throughout this month, the next five weeks. Um, And there's also, uh, you can sign up for the form. The form.life is an online kind of resource that you can also go along. Um, They have a ton of videos and blogs and stuff like that. If you're interested to, to do that. So this Advent... Um, 
we are celebrating and remembering the story of God coming and revealing himself in the birth of Jesus, which is the story of Christmas, right? We all, we all it's pretty familiar. But we're going to go through um, this time through the names. And so I think it will add, um, hopefully, kind of a new perspective and um, help us to get to know God more deeply. Advent's also a time of waiting and anticipation. We, we imagine and we re-enter what it must have been like for Israel to finally meet their long-awaited Savior. And when we do this, we prepare our own hearts to meet Jesus face-to-face when he comes again. But, but even now, he's here with us, right, by his Spirit and as we gather. So let's pray for, for God to gather time uh, as we're here together today. Lord, Lord God, you are good and you are present with us, God. Thank you for um, your grace today that, that um, we have this time to be together, to worship together, um, and to turn our eyes to you um, as we remember and we celebrate and we anticipate um, you working in our midst. So just pray that you would open our hearts and our ears and our eyes to whatever it is that you want to teach us this morning from your word. God, we thank you, we love you, and pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So Thanksgiving is a holiday where we remember to be thankful for all the things, all the good things that God has blessed us with, and we spend time with family and friends. But it's also a complex holiday because it it brings up and raises questions about our country's history and relationship with Native American people. Now, if, if you haven't noticed yet, my name, Dakota, is a Native American word because, uh, well, my parents were California hippies, so that's the name that they picked. Uh, they didn't know anything about it. But, um, so I'm not Native, but I love learning about and from Native American culture and values. They have such a painful history, but they've retained such deep beautiful values. I just finished reading uh, artist Makoto Fujimara's book, Culture Care, and in it he tells a story about the differing values between Western settlers and Native Americans. So he tells this uh, historical account um, retelling. So before settlers came uh, to the once flourishing the salmon runs, right, of the Pacific Northwest, uh, before they came, the Native American people tended the rivers and they monitored the fish populations. And so each year they would remove from the water only the fish they needed to live. And then they would leave the rest in there. So the guiding value was receive enough and leave the rest. The fish which they needed also had value in and of themselves. They were received as gifts rather than used as commodities. And so the value that they put on feeding themselves was in tension with the value that they placed on the fish themselves. And so the fish population remained intact. And then when the settlers came, uh, they treated the fish as means to the end of what actually had value for them, which was to turn a profit. Right? The guiding value was win more for myself by taking more from the next person. You know, it, it wasn't long before the salmon runs collapsed, and they remain threatened today. The result of what these two groups valued was drastically different. 
And this doesn't mean profits or bottom lines are bad, but Fujimara's conclusion after telling the story is to consider um, having multiple bottom lines, right, that, that value people, places, and living things alongside profits. So what, what do we value? And where does that lead us? These questions inevitably shape what we do and who we become. These guiding values, they lead to outward lives. The question of what we value is actually a question about worship. It's worth-ship. What is worthy of our worship? And then who and what do we think is worthy to guide us in that? So today we're going to see that the only God Most High is worthy of our worship. Only God Most High is worthy of our worship. So as we enter this Advent series, thinking about the names of God, we see right away in Luke chapter 1, that name, Most High, appears not just once but twice. But where does the name come from? Why would it have mattered to Mary that this angel comes and tells her that her son will be the son of the Most High? To do this, we're, we're going to go back into the Psalms. So we read Psalm 97. Psalms are, are the worship songbook for the Jewish Bible. What we have is the Old Testament. The name or idea of God as, as Most High, it occurs in many Psalms all throughout the Psalter, but Psalm 97 really captures it succinctly and powerfully. I think the main thrust of what Psalm 97 is saying is, is because God Most High reigns over all the earth, he deserves our worship. So the first three words we read when we look at Psalm 97 are these, the Lord reigns. And we can't begin this series about the names of God without thinking about this name. It's the name. It's the God-given name that he, that he revealed to Moses. This all caps, the Lord. It comes up six times just in these 12 verses of Psalm 97. This is the way that in many of our English translations, they've, the translators decided to render this name of God um, this way. It's revealed to Moses in Exodus 3, verse 14. And then later, uh, Moses is given this, this picture of who God is. God comes to Moses and says, I'm going to tell you my name. So this is Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 7. He describes his name. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast, steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God gave his name to Israel to be a guide for them as they prepared to leave Sinai, walk through the wilderness on their way to this land that God had promised to give them. So the Israelites now had this new paradigm, this guiding value system to carry them along on their journey. As they ventured out to live into this new alternate community, they were called not to bear the Lord's name in vain. 
In her book, Bearing God's Name, Old Testament scholar Carmen Joy Imez, she argues that this is actually the correct way to understand the commandment that we normally think of as taking God's name in vain. Israel was called to carry and represent God's name to the nations, to the world. So God's self-revelation, his giving of his name, is the key guide for how Israel was to live. Who they were to be was rooted in whose they were. God's people called by his name and so called to live in his ways. And as the story of the Bible progresses, they entered the promised land, they grew into this mighty kingdom. And then this new paradigm is completely ignored. The people are exiled. They come to trust in human kings instead of God who's their true king. And so he exiled them to be ruled by the very nations they were supposed to display God's name to. And it's during this time of exile where prophets, some prophets begin to arise in Israel and they call people back to hope. To hope in the midst of this darkness. And so as this hope begins to stir, they recall promises made to Israel, especially to David, the pinnacle of the monarchy, this king, and as they dare to hope, for this new king to come who will reign like David. They start to proclaim God as their true king. And they start writing songs. They're writing these songs carried along by the Holy Spirit about God on the throne. This is where Psalm 97 comes from. It's an enthronement psalm. It's spoken by a people of despair who have still a fledgling hope of new life. So when you look at Psalm 97, the first words are, the Lord reigns. But what kind of reign? What kind of reign is in Psalm 97? Verse 5, God is called the Lord of all the earth. And then the rest of the first five verses give us this picture of this immense, even terrifying power. God's surrounded by clouds and, and thick darkness and Fire burns up those who oppose him. He sends out lightning that shocks the world into fear. And mountains melt like they're nothing. Truly, this is God of all the earth. Shows the power of God as vast, inexhaustible. Nothing, not adversaries, not mountains, not darkness, nothing in all the world can stand against him. And yet verse 2 says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. This is no tyrant. God reigns according to his revealed character. Everything he does flows from who he is. And we see the meaning of this name, his name, filled out more in the rest, in verses 6 through 9. Uh, in the ESV translation, the Hebrew word used for most high for that name is Elyon. It's rendered in verse 6 as a descriptor. This is verse 6. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Now this reference to other gods here can kind of be confusing. Uh, it can trip people up. I, I thought the whole point of God revealing himself to Israel was to say that he's the only God. He's the only real God. And that's true. 
He is the only real God. But the reality on the ground, so to speak, is that idolatry reigns. Worshiping anything besides God. This is actually the whole reason Israel was exiled in the first place, right? They forgot God and these guiding values that he gave them in his name. And they began valuing things as means to serve Israel's own ends rather than valuing them as gifts from the creator. And so they made images of created things and so actually devalued God and his generosity. Idolatry is is not a matter of valuing things too much, but it's of not valuing their true source enough. When this happens, humans, people, us, we suffer. God's given humans the dignity and the responsibility to bear his image to the world, to represent his name. When when humans fail to recognize that all of their life is from God, then the light that God made humans to be begins to go out. Right? And so this growing darkness in the world that, that fails to recognize God is part of the yearning that leads to this psalm, to declaring God as most high. Theologian Walter Brueggemann, he puts it this way, to understand the yearning of people in this psalm, we must understand that the trade-off of gods is matched by a reduction of people. The matter of idols is not a matter of statues and figurines. It is a matter of changing symbols and values. As the true God is diminished, so the value of human persons is diminished in commensurate fashion. Our view of human dignity, of human value and worth, is directly tied to our view of God. Anytime that we make God less than he is, we actually reduce humans to less than they are. And so we justify all horrible ways of treating each other. Do you value the screen in your hand more than the child who's right in front of you who wants to play? Do you value cheap products more than the workers who made it, who are themselves made in God's image? Do you value quick and efficient so much that you miss the value of interruptions, of times God wants to turn into life-giving conversation? What cost? What cost are we incurring for our children, for our families, for our churches, our cities, for the earth, when we value created things as means to our own ends, rather than valuing them for the end that God created everything, which is to show his glory. So maybe you're sitting here this morning and you've got some questions, or maybe you've got one big question, or maybe just one main little question. Maybe all of this talk about idolatry, all this talk about God's glory, God's image, worship. Maybe it raises all kinds of questions for you. 
I want you to know today that you and your question, your questions, whatever they are, you are valuable. You're made in God's image and you're already loved. He wants us to seek after him and come as we are with whatever we're wrestling with. And one of the ways that we live into this human calling as image bearers is not to shy away from working through those questions together. Even if we feel like we're alone in our doubts or our concerns or even our anger, distrust or disillusionment, God's not afraid of those things. So if you're someone with questions, hear this. We, we wanted to create a space during this Advent se- season, during this series, where, where we can come together and we can um, be in conversation after the service each Sunday. So it's going to be kind of an informal Q&A, not the, not that I'm going to be the one with all the answers or anything, but I can at least promise that, that the questions that you bring will be listened to and validated, and we'll get to talk about them, whatever is inside of you right now. So for now, we're going to gather up over here, the first few pews on the far left, just after the service, and, and we'll be doing this every week after both services, um, even if I'm not preaching. So whoever's preaching, they're not going to be the ones leading it. I'll just be over there. We can get together and talk. And please feel free to join us, even if you don't have a burning question in you, and just listen in. So Q&A after the service, just over here. Okay? Okay, cool. So the thrust of Psalm 97's exaltation of God as most high over all the earth is this, that idols are like nothing before him. Whatever else people might value instead of him, God's greatness overshadows all of it. And this actually explains the notes of joy, right? There's joy going throughout this psalm. Not only does it begin and end with rejoicing, there's let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. And rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. Give thanks to his holy name. And it's actually anchored in the middle with rejoicing, precisely when God shows himself as most high over worthless idols. So if our idols cause us to devalue one another, then God coming and demolishing these things that keep us in this self-imposed darkness is actually really good news. It's the, the only way, as the Israelites reflected on this, this is the only way that they can imagine a life with rejoicing. They're exiled. They're downcast. They're poor. They're made low. Joy is possible in the midst of darkness only because God reigns. Because God is who he says he is. Because God keeps his promises. This is the language that the prophet Isaiah picks up to speak about this coming king who will sit on the throne of David. Isaiah verse 9, we read, The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. So hundreds of years later, when the gospel writers were trying to make sense of this earth-shaking reality of Christmas, this was one of the verses they went to. So this brings us finally back to Jesus. God is worthy of our worship because he reigns over all the earth. 
but also in the coming of Jesus, God most high becomes God most low and so wins our worship. <clears throat> Luke chapter 1, verse 26, we read that, that a messenger sent from God, this angel, was sent to, to Caesar, to the ruler of the Roman Empire, to Herod, ruler of Rome's conquered province, to the rulers and the chief priests of the Jews at the temple in Jerusalem? No. None of those places. God sent his angel to Nazareth. To little poor Nazareth in this, this backwater town to a teenage girl who was engaged but not yet married. And what does the angel tell her? Verse 30, it says, Do not be afraid, Mary. Implying that she clearly was afraid. There's this angel of light coming into her room. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You should call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. What? Her? There? This is the shocking newness of Christmas. We're so desensitized to how crazy this is. And then what does the angel say about this son of the Most High? He says, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This matches Isaiah's prophecy so exactly. Look at, look at in chapter 9, just after the verse we read earlier. Chapter 9, verse 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is God most high come to earth. To the earth over which he reigns. And when most high God comes, he is low. He makes himself God most low. Here's just the three, three tangible signs that illustrate just how low God comes in the birth of Jesus, right? He, he comes in the darkness, literally and metaphorically. He comes in a womb, and he comes in a feeding trough. This is the core of what, being, of, of what God being most high means during Advent. God most high is worthy of our worship, not just because he reigns over all the earth, but because he became God most low in order to lift those who are low up. This is how God wins our worship. You know what makes this thing even more astonishing? Is Mary's response. Right after asking some preliminary questions about uh, mechanics, the angel tells her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. 
for nothing will be impossible for God. And she's convinced. She takes God at, God at his words. Verse 38 says, she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So Mary's faith guides us to what is most worthy of our worship, to who, whom is most worthy of our worship. This is who God has always been, the most high God who came low to lift others up. He's always used his immeasurable power to win the worship of people who are stuck in darkness and are hurting. Listen to this. This is Isaiah, again, Isaiah 57, verse 15. Before Jesus came, hundreds of years before he came, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is contrite, who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Friends, this is what Advent is about. Jesus came to show us who God is and has always been. After first coming and being born like us, identifying with us in our deepest pain and shame, he went lower than anyone has ever gone, from the throne to the cross. He went into the depths, took our sin with him, and then rose to new life. Ultimately, this is good news for all of us, for all peoples and the whole earth. But I think we have to ask ourselves some questions. Are we truly those who are low, who are needy, who are helpless in and of ourselves? Or are we those who have made gods out of things? Have we let things, money, love, win our worship so that we turn to them rather than to God? Especially when we're in the darkness. If we do not see ourselves as those who are low, then we're not going to worship God for being most high who came low for us. This is why God speaks so highly over and over of, of children, of the poor, the marginalized, and the weak of our world. They're inherently, they're predisposed to, to see God more rightly, more truly, more beautifully than those of us who, who feel like we have it all together, relatively, or at least can make it look somewhat convincing. God is and has always been the one who comes to those who are low in order to lift them up. This is what, exactly what Mary is led to sing, following after the psalmists. So as, as we read her song together, I'm going to read it for us. Let her faith stir up faith in us. This is verses 46 through 55 in Luke 1. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty 
has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, and he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his, Abraham and his offspring forever. So those who are low have the highest hope and the highest calling to magnify the Lord, to worship God most high. Jesus is God most high come for you in your lowest, deepest darkness. He came to win you over by his love, to restore us together to our rightful place in God's universe as image bearers who worship the only God who is worthy, and so become like him. Right? This is exactly what Paul embodies and exemplifies in his ministry. He becomes like Jesus, going to the weak of the world, those who are low, despised, marginalized, and hurting. He enacts this winning love of the Most High, who does not stand far off but comes to us. Let's go away with this, this verse. This is 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22. To the weak, I became weak, that I may win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I may win some. So let us follow Mary's guidance and Paul's example. This Advent season, let's let God win us over by his love to worship the one who alone is worthy, the Son of the Most High, Jesus Christ. He came to the lowest to lift them up with him. So let's go and do likewise. So let's pray. God Most High, God, thank you for showing us in the birth of Jesus, that you do not stand far away from us. God, you do not um, wait for us to, to get up the courage to come to you. God, but you come after us, and you love us, and you died for us. God, thank you that we can worship you together, knowing that it is by your grace, by your love, that we have this new life together in you. So we love you. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.